Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Senate is back in session today and funding the government is now a top priority. How much new spending the White House has requested. The raid on Trump's home could be damaging to America's image. A policy analyst tells us why and accuses China of trying to exploit any division in the U.S. Barred from seeking or holding office, that's what happened to a New Mexico official who was on Capitol grounds on J6. California Governor Gavin Newsom signs a bill that could require fast food workers to be paid $22 per hour. Will it also raise fast food prices? And Liz Truss officially becomes the United Kingdom's Prime Minister. Boris Johnson gives his farewell speech. Congress is back this week, and atop the agenda is funding the government. The White House has already requested $47 billion in new emergency spending, and lawmakers may try to attach a controversial measure to this must-pass bill. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with the details. Senators are back in session today with less than four weeks to pass a necessary government funding bill. The House has already passed six of the 12 bills needed, though none of them have been taken up in the Senate. Time is ticking to get this done, and news is now surfacing that congressional leadership could use this pressing timeline in order to attach an unrelated measure to this necessary government funding bill. That is a vote to protect same-sex marriage. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer has vowed to hold a vote on marriage equality without specifying exactly when he plans to bring it to the floor. So far, three Republican senators have publicly said they'd vote yes. The House already passed the Marriage Equality Act with the overwhelming support of 47 House Republicans. And now, how many Republican senators are willing to vote for such a measure? The answer could soon become clear if leadership does decide to attach same-sex marriage to a temporary government funding bill. Adding to the to-do list for this annual funding bill, the White House has requested tens of billions of dollars in emergency funding. From aid to Ukraine, pandemic relief, and other items. This process, of course, needs to be bipartisan. $22 billion for COVID-19, $4.5 billion to fight monkeypox at home and abroad. Over $11 billion for Ukraine, with $2 billion to offset the rise in domestic energy costs. The White House is also proposing $500 million to help low-income Americans pay for higher utility bills. And $6.5 billion for disaster relief to address floods, hurricanes, drought, and more. The White House wants to provide this supplemental funding without having to provide ways to offset this new cost. And this is likely to garner strong pushback from Republicans. But with that being said, lawmakers are eager to get back to their home states to continue campaigning for the midterm. So we do expect them to try to negotiate their differences rather quickly so that they can return to the campaign trail. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Now to the Trump raid. A policy analyst says the raid on former President Trump's home helped to boost China's political agenda. NTD's Eileen Richards has the story. Judge Eileen Cannon recently granted former President Trump's request for a special master. She directed lawyers from both sides to submit a joint filing that includes a list of special master candidates. 
In her order, Cannon said because of Trump's status as a former president, the stigma associated with the subject seizure is in a league of its own. Policy analyst Bradley Thayer says raiding a former president's home cuts against the political stability of the United States. That's a violation of political American political culture and principles. Uh, and that has an effect. What happens in the United States does not stay in the United States. It goes abroad. There's an international context for all of these uh, events uh, and actions. He said it was a negative event for the credibility of the United States, especially to China. It was a benefit to China and the Chinese Communist Party to see the Biden administration acting uh, in this way and make the U.S. future less attractive and, and allows the Chinese Communist Party uh, to have um, a little bit of an advantage, a little bit of a propaganda coup uh, because of that action. So it should have never been undertaken. He said America's responsibilities are not only with its own citizens, but also to its allies around the world. We also want to recognize that we do have an enemy uh, the Chinese regime that will seek to capitalize if we create a cleavage. So we need to be sensitive to how these events are going to be exploited uh, by our enemies and do our utmost to minimize those uh, clearly and obviously. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. An official in New Mexico has been barred from holding state or federal office for getting involved in the January 6th Capitol breach. A state judge ruled that County Commissioner Cui Griffin engaged in insurrection when he entered restricted capital grounds. It's the first time that a judge has officially called the events an insurrection. Griffin was charged with disorderly conduct and entering a restricted area. He's known for founding the group called Cowboys for Trump. And over in California... The Bay Area region reported widespread power outages today as the state deals with a heat wave. Authorities have declared an energy emergency. The state's largest utility company, Pacific Gas and Electric, said 20,000 customers in the Bay Area lost power on Monday afternoon. That number dropped to fewer than 10,000 today. Temperatures reached over 100 degrees in parts of Northern California, and state officials said the demand for electricity this afternoon could be the highest the state has ever seen. California's grid operator issued a statewide flex alert asking residents not to charge their electric vehicles between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. This comes as the state voted last month to ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. And California Governor Gavin Newsom signed a bill on Monday that could require some fast food franchises to pay employees a minimum wage as high as $22 an hour. There's concern that fast food prices could also rise. NTD's Jason Perry reports. We're experiencing leads on Monday, California Governor Gavin Newsom delivered this message on Twitter. We recognize there are sectors of our economy where we're falling a bit short, and one of those areas is fast food workers. And I want to thank Assemblymember Holden in particular for AB 257 and all of his hard work, a bill that empowers our workers, particularly in that sector, giving them more voice, giving them more choice.
The bill will create a fast food council made up of 10 industry members. This group will establish minimum wage standards, working hours, and other working conditions for fast food restaurants in California with 100 or more locations. And beginning next year, fast food franchises could be required to pay employees a minimum wage of up to $22 per hour. And McDonald's USA President Joe Erlinger says it could drive up the cost of fast food in California by 20 percent at a time when Americans already face soaring costs in supermarkets and at gas pumps. Giving people raises when they haven't done anything extra tells them that they don't have to do anything extra to get raises. I spoke with Michael Bussler a professor of finance at Stockton University, who explained that $22 per hour is about a $45,000 per year cost for the businesses. He said this will most likely cause customers to pay more for fast food, and businesses will try to eliminate workers by adding machines and touchscreens to get the job done. What we really want to do is say, look, uh, there's opportunity for everybody here. Just figure out how to contribute more, and you'll be able to earn more. Don't depend on the government to raise your wages artificially. We reached out to the Office of California Governor Gavin Newsom for comment, but we didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden spent his Labor Day pushing for workers' rights to organize. He's pledged to be the most pro-union president ever. But not everyone wants to join a union. In some cases, they're forced to join or pay union dues. The president of a right-to-work organization is advocating for choice. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Monday at a Labor Fest event in Milwaukee, President Joe Biden praised the accomplishments of union workers and promoted organized labor. But Mark Mix, president of the National Right-to-Work Foundation, says there's a growing effort to force more workers into unions. So what's happening is that the federal government, be it the Biden administration, the National Labor Relations Board, the Department of Labor, they're trying to put their thumb on the scale to, to increase regulation um, and precedent that gives union officials the power to force more workers into unions as opposed to recruiting them through providing great services. How does this help the federal government? Well, because it's a revenue question. I mean, unions are a private business, too. Um, they are a, a $20 billion a year business. A large portion of that revenue comes from dues revenue. And so their product, their customer, is a dues-paying union member. So the more power they can get, the more privilege they can get granted from government to force more workers into unions, that obviously is one way to increase your revenue stream. President Biden has promised to be the most pro-worker, pro-union president in American history. Mick said there are benefits to joining a union if you want to speak up about your employer mistreating you. But he said the membership should be voluntary. So it's kind of confusing to me why union officials continue to press for this government privilege to force more workers to accept them as their bargaining agent, to force more workers into these collectives and force them to pay dues or fees as a condition of getting or keeping a job. President Biden has called on Congress to pass the Protect the Right to Organize Act, a bill that would expand labor protections and make it easier for workers to organize. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And a recent study shows that jobs are flooding out of pro-union states and into states with more free market policies. The report by economist Todd Nesbitt and public policy analyst Michael Lefebvre is based on Bureau of Labor Statistics data. It says right-to-work states, which do not compel workers to join unions or pay their fees, added 1.3 million jobs since the start of the pandemic. 
while pro-union states lost 1.1 million jobs. There could be a range of factors influencing the change, from people who no longer want to fund labor unions that push for policies and other society-wide changes that may not align with their values, for example, funding and advocating for abortion access, to people simply moving where they think they can make the best living. And I dig into that with Lee Schalk. He's vice president of policy at the American Legislative Exchange Council. And I spoke with him earlier today. Lee Schalk, welcome to our show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, a new report shows that states with more free market policies are gaining jobs over more pro-union states. What's your reaction to the latest report? The report was not surprising, especially when you consider that right-to-work laws mean greater freedom for both individuals and businesses. Of course, it means that for workers, they don't have to join a union or be forced to join a union or contribute money to a union as a condition of their employment. But for businesses, it means that they've got greater flexibility. They can quickly adapt to changing market conditions. They can do things like offer bonuses for merit. Uh, that they may not be able to do when they are uh, constrained by union contracts. And so it's not surprising to see so many jobs being created in the states that have right-to-work laws on the books. And so do you think these right-to-work laws have impacted businesses' decisions about where to invest? Absolutely. I think that when a business is deciding to relocate its headquarters or where to set up shop, whether or not a state has a right to work law is one of the first things they're checking for. You can look at some of the major companies, corporations that have relocated to states like Texas. You think about recently Caterpillar, Chevron, Tesla. Of course, they're all moving from non-right to work states like Illinois or California. And so that is one of the first things that a business looks for. And do you think that pandemic lockdowns and people moving to more open states may have also impacted this? Yeah, I think people are always searching for opportunity when they decide to pick up and move to a new state. During the pandemic, this really came into focus and it's something we've tracked for a long time at ALEC, the migration of taxpayers from one state to another. and. During the pandemic, we saw hundreds of thousands of people leave states like California and New York and head south to right to work states like Florida, Texas, North Carolina, and others in search of opportunity. And we know that when a state has right to work laws, not only are they creating higher wages for workers in those states, but they're also creating more jobs. And so this latest report is consistent with the research and data that we've been accumulating at ALEC for a long time. Do you think that this exodus could mean that we'll see more states adopting right-to-work laws? Well, on behalf of you know workers across the America and people that are looking to uh, build out their careers, earn more money, they want to be in right-to-work states. And so the hope is that more and more states will adopt these types of freedoms across the country you know, some people have asked, well, what good are union jobs if they're disappearing? And so that's what really has happened with this latest report. We've saw that more than a million jobs have been lost from non-right-to-work states, while right-to-work states have added a million jobs. So we are hopeful that more states will take note.
All right, thank you so much, Lee Schalk from the American Legislative Exchange Council. Thank you. And we have an update. Our show will now run from 6.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, Liz Truss officially becomes the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson gives his farewell speech. And in college football news, the latest AP poll is out and defending champion Georgia moves up following their dominant win. NTD's Dave Martin has the rest of the top 10. That and more coming up. Liz Truss has officially become the UK's new Prime Minister after being appointed by the Queen at Balmoral Castle. She's got a tough tenure ahead of her, particularly with the country facing rising energy costs. Truss made her first speech as Prime Minister today. NTD's Jane Werrell has a story. We will transform Britain into an aspiration nation with high-paying jobs, safe streets, and where everyone everywhere has the opportunities they deserve. I will take action this day and action every day to make it happen. United with our allies, we will stand up for freedom and democracy around the world, recognizing that we can't have security at home without having security abroad. I will drive reform in my mission to get the United Kingdom working, building and growing. We'll get spades in the ground to make sure people are not facing unaffordable energy bills. And we will also make sure that we are building hospitals, schools, roads and broadband. Well, that was Liz Truss's first speech as Prime Minister, and she started off by paying tribute to Boris Johnson. And it's worth mentioning that just as she was scheduled to start, there was a big downpour, and it's been really changeable weather here today. And on that weather theme, Liz Truss did say that she's confident that the British people are strong and can ride out the storm. And of course, she has many major issues to deal with now that she's in office. Now, we have an idea now of what, how she's going to tackle those. Um, so she said that she'll get Britain working again, and she'll be focusing on three areas, the economy, energy and the NHS. Uh, she said this will, this will set up the nation for long-term success. In terms of the economy, she said she'll be bringing in tax cuts. But energy, she said that the government will be hands-on and will be taking action this week. And she will also make sure people will get their doctor's appointments um, in the NHS. She mentioned freedom several times, saying that we will face up for freedom with our allies and spoke about Russia's aggression in Ukraine, of course. She finished the speech by talking, saying that she's determined to deliver. Well, she has a lot of challenges ahead of her and now she has two years to prove herself to the public before the next general election. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. And former Prime Minister Boris Johnson gave his farewell speech before a crowded Downing Street today. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has that story. Boris Johnson, the outgoing Prime Minister, bid farewell to the nation in his final address as the United Kingdom's leader. In only a couple of hours, I will be in Balmoral to see Her Majesty the Queen. 
and the torch will finally be passed to a new Conservative leader, the baton will be handed over in what has unexpectedly turned out to be a relay race. They changed the rules halfway through, but never mind that now. And through that lacquered black door, a new Prime Minister will shortly go to meet a fantastic group of public servants. Johnson praised the government officials he worked with for what they achieved. Getting Brexit done, the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe, their support of Ukraine, and getting the country's economy moving again as the UK left lockdown, as well as helping people through the energy crisis. And I know that Liz, Truss and this compassionate Conservative government will do everything we can to get people through this crisis and this country will endure it and we will win. Johnson thanked the British public for electing him and gave his full support towards Truss and her new administration. Thank you, Thank you and goodbye. Thank you. Malcolm Hudson. NTD News, London. And over to Canada. Federal police surrounded a home searching for a murder suspect. He and his brother are accused of killing at least 10 people in a stabbing spree over the weekend. Police barricaded the roads and warned people to shelter in place. It now appears that the suspect, Miles Sanderson, was never in the area. An officer anonymously disclosed to AP that it was a false alarm. Most of the stabbings took place on the James Smith Cree First Nation Reserve in Saskatchewan. Sanderson's brother and fellow suspect, Damien Sanderson, was found dead on Monday. Police suspect Miles Sanderson killed his brother. The stabbing attack is among the deadliest mass killings in Canada. And now, over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Baseball's minor league players want to unionize. Their recent vote in favor of unionizing paves the way for them to join Major League Baseball's Players Union. The minor league players say that better wages and working conditions are their biggest priorities. The Major League Players Union started representing players on each team's 40-man rosters back in 1966. The pay gap between the big leagues and the minor leagues is substantial. The average major leaguer earns more than $4 million a year with a minimum salary of $700,000. Meanwhile, minor leaguers earn between $400 and $700 a week during the six-month season. Those amounts don't include draft pick signing bonuses, which range this year from a few thousand dollars to more than $8 million. Earlier this year, Major League Baseball and lawyers for minor leaguers agreed to a $185 million settlement after a federal lawsuit alleged violations of minimum wage laws. The deal is expected to be finalized in 2023. Elsewhere in baseball, Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge continued his march toward history, hitting his 54th home run of the season yesterday. The 30-year-old Judge is on pace for 65 home runs which would be an American League record. The current record of 61 was set all the way back in 1961 by former Yankee great Roger Maris and is widely considered to be the clean record. The Yankees have 27 games left this season. And in college football, the defending champion Georgia Bulldogs moved up from third to second in this week's AP poll after their dominating 49-3 win over then 11th ranked Oregon. Georgia received 17 first place votes, but it wasn't enough to overtake number one ranked Alabama, which stayed at the top after a 55 to nothing win over Utah State. 
Ohio State, meanwhile, fell from second to third after their 21-10 win over Notre Dame, while the Irish slipped to eighth. Defending Big Ten champion Michigan moved up to fourth following their 51-10 win over Colorado State, while Clemson dropped from fourth to fifth after beating Georgia Tech 41-10 Monday night. The rest of the top ten includes Texas A&M at sixth, Oklahoma seventh, Baylor ninth, and USC tenth. All four teams rolled to dominant wins on Saturday. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. Now, the father and son team of Wilhelm and Benjamin Eimers won the 65th Gordon Bennett Cup. It's the world's oldest gas balloon race. Setting off on Friday from St. Gallen in Switzerland, the German pair flew a distance of 975 miles in a straight line. They landed by the Bulgarian Black Sea coast near the Turkish border on Monday morning. The Eimers were airborne for two days, 12 hours and 50 seconds. They flew along the border between Germany and Austria and through Hungary, Serbia, Romania and Bulgaria. The Eimers are the first father and son team to win the race and 72-year-old Wilhelm bagged a fifth victory in his 29th competition. Benjamin triumphed for the first time in his fifth attempt. The prize-giving ceremony will take place on Saturday in St. Gallen. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.